Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we discuss, we try to learn, we try to emulate Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and great investors that are in the tradition that we call the Rule One Tradition, from Warren's statement that there's only two rules of investing, Rule number one, don't lose money. And rule number two, don't forget rule number one. And Dad, that's what I'm teaching Danielle. That's that was the, the title story. of your first best-selling book, which was number one. And, and then you had a second best-selling book, which hit number one. And now we have a third best-selling book, Invested, which is number one in the entire country this week. So exciting. We have a national number one bestseller. LA Times just penned it as number one best-selling nonfiction book in America right now. Out it's gunning. It's insane. All the other ones that are out there, which boggled my mind. You guys, thank you for buying this book. I'm, I'm just like, we, we don't even have, we don't know what to say anymore. This is so amazing, the reception that our book Invested has gotten from all of you. And thank you for buying it. And thank you for loving it. Thank you for sending us messages about it. Thank you for reading it and seeing yourselves in it. I think the coolest thing is that people see themselves in both of us as they read it, as they see like the father, they see the daughter, they see the person who's freaked out, they see the person who's starting to get it, like whatever part of our journeys you and I were on. We've had a lot of people write us and say, I'm also divorced and like, I'm going through this with my children. I mean, it's it just touches so many points in people. Yeah, it really is. There was a great guy that came to our uh, workshop in Atlanta who's a construction worker, tattooed, burly guy, you know, totally in, in, into investing, who had been listening to the podcast. And he said what we're hearing from other people who are reading this book, which is that Danielle is me. <laughs> <laughs> which it's I so thought was pretty, pretty amazingly cool. And that's I think amazing. that when you read this, you'll find that's true. By the way, if you can go to Amazon and do a review there, um, that would be awfully helpful. We, we're running a 4.9 stars now. Oh my gosh, Amazon Dad! Reviews and the Listen. reviews are so phenomenal. Thank you all. There's Listen not to this been one. One single negative review of the book at all. I posted this on my Instagram because it cracked me up so much. So all the reviews are five stars, except for well, this is from probably a week ago when I last checked. They were all they were all five stars, except for one review, which undoubtedly gave us that 4.9 because it was only four stars. And here's what the review said. First of all, four stars. And then it said, this girl really loves Nuno. And then next line, <laughs> I really enjoyed this book. I think it's a really great book about investing. That's it. That's the entire review. So I like, I was like, is, did he take a star off because I love my husband? Like, I is that think so? Like, what, I think he did. What is you the logical Nuno. progression here? I find it fascinating. <laughs> so I screenshotted it and put it up for everyone. This is our one four star review. Danielle really loves Nuno. That's his takeaway. <laughs> and I showed it to Nuno, by the way, for everybody who doesn't know, this is my husband who um, is kind of a, he's in the book because I met him at the same time that I was learning investing. So of course he's in the book. And, um, and so I showed him the review and he just died laughing. He was like, if that's what it takes. That's what it takes. <laughs> 
<laughs> to have one star less. That's okay. <laughs> I love that man. I love that man. Danielle's husband is one of the kindest people I've ever met in my life. He's incredibly smart. He's an international. Oh, that's a good compliment, Dad. He is kind. That's oh, he's right. so kind. He's such a big-hearted guy, and he's an international banking consultant and travels um, a lot of the world, helping banks figure out how to make themselves more uh, prosperous and do better job for their clients. And he's an incredible uh, computer. Uh, I don't know what you call it, an, an IT guy. I mean, he like uses computers and programs to figure out what's he's going a, on out there. Yeah, he's not an IT guy. He's a statistician, really. Like he go. he is really good with. <laughs> this is how I interpret what he does. He like uses a lot of spreadsheets and he makes algorithms in ways that I don't understand. The end. The end. Except for one thing, not the end, and that is that Noons. What's my endearing name for Noons? For Nuno, <laughs> Nunes is um, trained at Duke and is incredibly uh, well read and uh, well informed in his world, which is big banks. Um, and he is deep into modern portfolio theory and runs a lot of what he does based on modern portfolio theory. And we have these great conversations. This is what I love about him so much. He doesn't take offense at my view of modern portfolio theory. And I certainly don't take offense at his. Uh, support of it in the sense that he's supporting something that is appropriate for for bankers who are looking to preserve capital. That is their yeah. main focus. I think that's exactly right. Like, I don't think that it's any sort of major issue. It's just a educational or, you know, financial theory that is useful in their work. Yeah. And, and the, then the theory basically says, that we can use certain mathematical ratios, which um, which purport to use an idea that risk is related to the movement of a stock price relative to the S&P 500 index. The more it moves, the more risk there is in modern portfolio theory. And um, there's a certain value to that, obviously. there's This has been a very powerful theory for a long, long time. And um, the value is predominantly that it allows very large institutions to, um, to have a working construct to rebalance portfolios and achieve rel you know, roughly a market rate of return. Um, and there is a certain value to those institutions of not having their stocks bounce around a lot. And yeah. to use indexes, right? I mean, being, being in our shoes where we're trying to make quite a lot of money with relatively low risk is not the shoes of an international bank. They're just in the low risk shoes. That's all. That's the whole thing is we don't want to have a lot of risk. And right. here's the here's the major and the ma major irony that I see, though, in that whole process is that um, they what Nunes does is he helps them create portfolios that are very risk averse by balancing off against a lot of other types of assets. Well, and, just to be clear, he doesn't make portfolios or choose com or choose investments at right, all. Right, right. He doesn't do the choosing. He just shows yeah. them how to structure it. I think is one sort way of. to say it. Sort of. Sort of. I'm going to continue. There are right. people who do that. So yes. go ahead. So the but the essence is that this style of investing um, has real questions about it. Number one, and number even in terms of risk. And number two is completely wrong for us, in my view, if we're trying to have a high rate of return and we need to have a high rate of return, we need to do well with our investments because 
we are not going to be able to diversify across endless numbers of assets in order to reduce risk. That isn't how we can play, because what that does inevitably is it reduces return and you end up with low risk and a bond level plus rate of return. We also often don't have the kind of time that people are looking at with these kinds of low risk, low return kinds of investments. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're looking at decades. Yeah, exactly. Some of us have that, but some of us don't. So last time what we were talking about was um, something that I haven't talked to Danielle about a lot, and that is exiting uh, a stock, selling a stock. And um, it's it hasn't really been on the radar. And we started looking at a few things, you know, arrows and trend trend indicators and so on. And we're going to get into those later uh, to the degree that, you know, as long as you guys are willing to understand them the way I do, which is all of those sorts of technical indicators are reading the shape of a cloud and, and deciding that it's a bunny or a train. So, I mean, it's just completely made up. But there's we'll get into why that, that may be useful to understand how the rest of the world's looking at that cloud. Um, but for right now, let's talk about getting out. Um, yeah, because you said something really incisive at the end of our last podcast, which was that if we don't have, I mean, you, you use Buffett's words, so I'll use Buffett's words. You said, if we don't have a wash tub, we can't run outside with the wash tub when it's raining gold, i.e., if we don't have any money in our investing account, we can't go buy a bunch of stuff when the market drops right. and it's a good time to buy. Right. And the reason we may not have a lot of money in our investing account is because probably a lot of us have already deployed that money right. in other companies right now. And so the question that people are asking, and I think this is so right on, is like, do I sell now just in order to sit around maybe for a long time? Because we don't know about the timing of this market. Or do I stay in and sort of hope that I can kind of time it? And that's how we started talking about this timing thing. Because right. I'm a little uncomfortable with it, but I'm okay with talking about it just in the sense of like, this is a real decision that we're all trying to grapple with right now. Right. Well, there, there's a couple of things. First off, in the book Invested, we talk in detail about three different views of how to figure out what price to pay for a company. Yes. One of those is the 10 cap method, which you very precisely pointed out, doesn't tell us anything about the value of the business, right? It tells us the price yeah. we want to pay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's all it tells us. It tells us that we are probably getting a very good margin of safety, that the value is well above the price, but we don't really know with any precision what that value is. Um, it's just a very precise way of coming to a price, and that's very useful to us. Um, then we looked at the payback time in the book, payback time analysis based on free cash flow, um, which is a different analysis than the 10 cap, which is based on owner earnings. So we're looking at different mm -hmm. numbers that are giving us different answers about the, the overall price to pay for the business. And the payback time also doesn't tell us really what the value of the business is. It just tells us how long it's going to be before we get our money out of it, which is a very useful thing to do if you're buying a private company and therefore becomes a really useful tool for us when we're buying public companies that we want to buy at private company prices. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's back. what I really like about these different methods that you taught me um, is that they're a way of getting at the same purpose, but with different information. And it, so it gives me confidence 
about my very poor math skills that if I'm roughly in a ballpark with all these answers, then I, I have a feeling like, okay, I've, I'm still doing it roughly. I'm still very aware of that, but at least I'm making a nice circle here of prices that are relatively close to each other. There's a, there's a great quote. I, I can't remember who Buffett is quoting, but I think he or Charlie was quoting somebody. And it goes like this. It's better to be roughly right than precisely wrong. <laughs> uh, yes, I agree with that. <laughs> but I think it just gave me, it gives me so much, um, it gives me so much confidence, I guess. Is that the right word? I'm not sure. But, but uh, maybe lack of anxiety is a better word or phrase because it tells me, okay, I don't have to be perfect. And I spend a lot of time telling myself, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good mm -hmm. in many areas of my life. And I'm the kind of person where I have to tell myself that regularly. So this, this method of having multiple ways into the price and into the value of a company is really helpful. So go ahead with your, you're probably getting to the third method. I am, um, which is where we climb into the dangerous territory of trying to be precisely right. Hmm. Really? So th yes, that is that is the danger of the of the um, of the valuation exercise called margin of safety that we talk about in the book, where we actually go for the value with some degree of precision. And this is where Buffett and Munger both um, would would strongly encourage us to lean on the first two methods, perhaps mm. rather than counting on being precisely right, because trying mm. to be precisely right has a lot of of, uh, as you'll read in the book, there, there are things you have to determine. You have to determine growth rate. You have to determine a PE ratio. Um, and these things can be can result in vastly different valuations if you just change the numbers a little bit. Right? Yeah, that is very true. That's the risk of, of trying that's to That's why I was a little surprised when you said precisely determine the value, because to me, it's still pretty all over the place because you change those those little numbers a little bit, like you said, and you end up with different answers. Yep, that's true. Now, the the reason, though, that it's worth learning and the reason that it's in the book um, is because at really, fundamentally, at some point, we have to sell this thing, potentially, particularly well, if we want to get uh, a big wash tub ready for the next big wave of potential uh, gold falling from the sky. I mean, you did tell me never to sell, but... I've taken that as sort of a Zen koan kind of statement. It is. It's a Zen koan <laughs> statement that says, you know, never say never that's, and never that's sell. That's the attitude. That's never the say attitude. never and what? And then never sell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it follows that um, maybe the 10-10 the rule is even a better rule and that's it, not quite so finalized. And, and that is or, you don't buy for 10 minutes unless you're ready to sit on it for 10 years. Yeah, and I think that's really that's really what you're getting at. But as we point out in the book, you know, getting the story right is the first step, getting the story. And then if the story changes, then, of course, you're going to change your investment. And part of the change in the story that we didn't talk about at all in the book, which is what I'm going to talk about with you now, Tell is me. that the value of the business, or rather the price of the business, is going to change over time. So we didn't discuss that, but it's obvious, right? That the price of the yeah. business won't stay where it was for 10 years, probably, if we've done a good job. Um, the price will move up toward its intrinsic value. So let's let's talk about what intrinsic value is for a second. Have we discussed intrinsic yeah. value? 
well, you mentioned it last time. And I, I sort of had this feeling like I knew what it was, but I couldn't explain it. So that probably means I don't know what it is. Um, I mean, I would probably get, if you, if you forced me to guess, I would guess that it's book value. It's what you could sell the company off for. Um, well, you like just said two things sale. that might not be exactly the same, but they're, but you're right that the intrinsic value is what you can sell the company off for, but it might be quite a lot larger than book value. In fact, for many companies, what you can sell the company off for in the market is going to be many multiples of the book value. Right, which is very different than book value. So I was guessing that it was book value, but you're saying actually it's more market value. Yeah, it's no market value is just a price. Market okay. value is just a name for the price in the market. Okay, but, Dad, what's intrinsic value? Okay, intrinsic value is what it's worth as a business. What it's worth as a business. And that means that um, it's not a Picasso that, you know, it has a market value, you know, which is just could be oh, all over the map. Oh, this is like the thing of what's the cash flow coming out of the business. Yeah, what's the value of the cash flow coming out of the business as a business? In other words, what is this thing worth as a business? Now, you're going to get huge variation from everybody from Dematerin and at NYU, who's the valuation expert of the universe and really, really good stuff and writes the textbooks on valuation um, for one set of things about what is intrinsic value. And, and but we're all talking about the same thing. It's what it should sell for in a, in a market that's rational. Um, and in other words, it's what the market is going to get right in the long run. It's going to get ultimately it's going to price this business properly because the market is very, very good and, and ultimately a weighing machine. It's going to weigh it properly for its real value and put the price there. But in the short run, the market is a voting machine based on whoever's the most fearful or whoever's the most greedy. And so when we say market value, we're really talking about, you know, how you value a Picasso. When we're talking about a business value, which is Buffett's terminology for intrinsic value, we're talking about the current value of all of the future cash that this business is going to produce. What you would pay for that okay. today, accounting for the fact that you don't really know, number one. Number two, there's a lot of risk involved in, you know, forever to, to have the business throw off cash flow. Um, and number three, that you have other things you can put your money into, which are less risky. You could go buy well, a U.S. Treasury bond, for example. So is that the same as our owner earnings calculation in the 10 cap pricing method? Nope. Because vastly different. That, no, but that calculates not the it's not the free cash. It's it's our version. It's our calculations. Buffett's calculation of owner earnings, like what you actually take home at the end of the year if you were the only owner of a private business and isn't that pretty much what you just said? Mm -mm. No, not even okay. close. So okay. let's, let's go deeper into that. Also, I just searched in our book to see if we use the term intrinsic value and we don't. So this <laughs> is new. We successfully avoided the word intrinsic value, which is loaded <laughs> with all kinds of people's opinions. Um, but owner, just to, just to real quickly give a couple of definitions. Owner earnings is... Um, Simply, if we look at a business the way we look at a piece of real estate that we're going to rent out um, yeah. as an individual, 
and we subtract the expenses of that thing from the revenue that's coming in in cash and take out the expenses and put in a bit of a fund for maintenance uh, of for replacing some capital items over time like the dishwasher and the refrigerator and we sort of amortize that fund put that fund in there and we have a certain amount of money left that we could literally spend every year from our real estate investment so that's mm -hmm. owner earnings that's mm -hmm. um, different than free cash flow free cash flow takes into consideration um, all of those things owner earnings takes into consideration plus a lot more um, of gap accounting stuff that's often just sort of arcane. And then finally, the biggest difference is it also includes the money we're spending in capital items to grow the business. Um, so we're not, you know, adding a wing onto the garage and renting out an extra room. Um, we're not including any of the cost of that if we wanted to do that in owner earnings. Um, we subtract that out of the owner earning, uh, sorry, out of the free cash flow calculation. Right, right. That comes out of the free. So free cash flow is what's left that you're free to invest any way you want to in the business. Um, and and you've already spent money on growth. Right. Having accounted yeah. for growth. Yeah. Okay. And then finally, um, we look at this method of saying, what's the free cash that's going to come out of this business all, all the way into the future somewhere. So the big difference between owner earnings free uh, cash flow to coming back to you in your pocket is that it's just that year, just the year you buy it. Oh, yeah. OK, I knew that because we make that very clear in the book. It's just the year that you buy, that you buy it. It's right. we're not looking forward. Right. Same thing with the free cash flow. We're not looking forward on that. Well, no, we are actually looking forward. No. on that. We're taking oh, yeah, the, you're right. We grow it, don't yeah, we? We grow you're it. You're right. I forgot yeah. about that. So we grow that free cash flow. Now, what we're doing with the margin of safety analysis is we're looking at cash, but we're going to do it the way the rest of the world does it. And that is that we're going to use generally accepted accounting principles. And we're going to say for the purpose of this one analysis that earnings and cash are roughly the same thing. And so we're going to use earnings, earnings per share or net income of the company, which is very different than owner earnings and very different than free cash flow. But it is the way that the world generally looks at the value of a business or the intrinsic value of a business. And mm -hmm. since we're going to sell it to the world at some point, we need to know how they're going to value this business. Does that make sense? They're not going to value yeah. it with free cash flow and owner earnings. They're going to value it with net income or earnings per share. And that's and then they're going to they're going to assume a certain growth rate and they're going to assume a certain P.E. ratio and they're going to end up with a value. And what we're saying here is that we're going to look at what those earnings should be over the next many, 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 many years. And then we're going to say, OK, if I'm going to have a million dollars a year of earnings all the way out for the next 30 years, then what would I pay for that today to account for the fact that the business might not last 30 years, that the earnings could dramatically drop off over the next 30 years, that the business could fail, that the business could lose its moat, that it could have terrible management. All of those things are a risk. So we're going to have to discount that cash. In other words, if I were to say to you, um, you give me a million dollars today and I'll give you back in 10 years, a million dollars. How excited would you be about doing that deal? Not excited. Not excited because 
I might not give you the money back. Right? Well, yeah, and I could probably do better stuff with it in the meantime than give it to you and just get it back in 10 years. Uh, for sure you could. You could put it in a government T-bill and you could get back your money plus interest on your money. Yeah. With is at least as much risk or with less risk than what you'd do with me. And so we understand that getting money in 10 years um, and paying for that today, if those are the same number, that's not a good deal. In other words, we need to get more money in 10 years than we pay for that today, or we're not going to do that deal. Right. To account for the risk of it yeah. and the potential other things you could do with your money. Sure. Now, are we coming around to intrinsic value? Yep. Okay. Okay. So what we're looking at when we're looking at intrinsic value is the present value today of those cash flows into the future the earnings into the future. We got to find some way to get back to that today. And that will tell us what the intrinsic value of this business is. Oh, using the earnings. Yep. Oh, yep. I thought we were going into something totally different here involving some godforsaken other fourth number. This is fantastic. Okay, we're still <laughs> in our margin of safety earnings category, and I love it. And that, that category gives us the intrinsic value. We just give it a different name. We call it the now, sticker price. Are you somebody who calls this intrinsic, is this a fill town term, or is this like a economics term or business term? Like who uses intrinsic value as a term? What yeah, is every, that generally? Every MBA program in the country. And does it mean this discounted cash flow analysis yes. method? Yes. And does does it use earnings? Yes. Oh, cool. Okay. So we're going Got mainstream it. here. We're going mainstream. I love yeah. going mainstream because then when I talk about it to people, they think that I'm smart about math stuff and yes. because I tricked them. And of course you wouldn't use the words margin of safety analysis. You would use the MBA term, which is discounted cash flow analysis. Yes. Discount I even put that in our book because I wanted everybody to know what term to say when you're at the cocktail party and you're telling <laughs> everybody about what you're learning lately. That way they know. Yeah. So here, instead of us diving into the details of this discounted cash flow analysis, also known as margin of safety analysis in the book Invested, rather than doing that here, um, I'm just going to suggest people get the book. And, and but definitely. Well, here's what I would like to do with with those chapters. And the huge reason we wrote this book is those chapters on pricing evaluation, because we did. I don't know if you remember this because it was a while ago. We did a whole series on valuation. I think we did like 10 episodes or something. I mean, it was a lot yep. and it was all over the place. It was. Uh, the info is there. It was a hot mess. It was kind of a hot mess because the info is there if you know what to listen for. But for people like me who really are just like, wow, this is a lot of information. It was, it was just a lot of information and it was kind of like mixed in with other pieces of information. And that really was what made me think, God, I got to write this stuff down for everybody like me. And then once it's written down, we can go through it on our podcast step by step. And everybody has a reference to look at yep. and to use the same examples, by the way. Well, that was also really important to me in the book to use the same examples 
through each um, evaluation method so that you could really see like, okay, in our example that we made up, which I love our lemonade stand, it's the same lemonade stand throughout each pricing evaluation method. And you can see how to use each one on this simple company. So it's really nice. So I think actually at some point here, we should go through those once we get through talking about, um, about the market and about these indicators and, and intrinsic value. So tell okay. me about so the, what the, you said. So here's the, here's, here's where we want to go with intrinsic. Value yeah, exactly. Exactly. Go, you know, we, we show you how to calculate it. Um, and if you read, uh, the Morden and it, at NYU, he'll have another way to calculate it, but it'll be in the ballpark of our way of calculating it. So there's some variability around that. But the basic idea is you're just looking at what's the future earnings of the company and you're discounting it back to today and making your best estimate of the risk it would take to get those earnings. And we show you how to do that in the book. Now, I literally boiled it down to four steps. It's amazing. <laughs> it's pretty good. You did it's good. Amazing. I remember like, writing this with you. It took two or three months. It was so hard clear. and we had so many arguments about it because oh, you were so certain that you were explaining it so clearly. And I was just like, I don't know if I'm dumb, but I don't get it. And if I don't get it, that means other people don't get it. And then I remember sitting in my kitchen and just thinking like, okay, how do I explain this to myself? And once I sort of got into that and I tell this whole story in the book about figuring out the logic of it and everything and then I boiled it down into steps and now it's like a four-step process like it's so simple oh, you did a really good job it was awesome. it's amazing thank it you awesome that I'll was, take that that's I mean uh, there's a million reasons I think to buy this book but that is one really good reason to buy this book that's not in any of the other books like it is in this one so no so how does intrinsic value no. become a trigger point to exit? Right. So let me let me take you to Warren Buffett's uh, 1961 letter. Oh, uh, yeah. We're going Wait, back in time. He started when in um, in like I think his first 59? Buffett partnership was 1956 or 57. So he'd only been going like four or five years. Four or five years. And wow. was killing it in the market. I mean, huge rates of return. So cool. people were asking, how do you do it? How do you do it? Explain to us how you're doing it. So here's, I'm going to just read it to you because it's just really wonderful how he's thinking okay. about this. Okay. He said, um, he said, we basically have the, we, we break our investing into three sections. And the first section is called undervalued securities that he calls generals. In other words, a general marketplace, um, general s public stocks. He says, um, where we have nothing to say about corporate policies, we have no timetable as when this undervaluation is going to correct itself. We just think it's undervalued, right? So he says, over the years, this has been our largest category of investment, and more money has been made here than in either of the other categories. And we usually have fairly large positions in five or six generals and smaller positions in 10 or 15. So the generals are- All right, what we hold on one second. Here. Generals are what again? You said the general market? Public stocks. Oh, public stocks yeah. versus private companies. Yeah. Okay. Right. And by the way, just so we cover it, the, the second category back in the early 1960s was what he called workouts. And these are companies that we know within a certain amount of time how uh, long it will take to, to get this job done. And that would be like a corporate merger um, liquidation and reorganization spinoffs and all these things. And, um, you know, so for example, if 
Fiat Chrysler is spinning off uh, Ferrari, then that's maybe something we could take advantage of as an example okay. of a recent one. Okay. And, um, and then the final category are con what they call control situations where Buffett basically takes over the company. Like he did okay. Berkshire Hathaway, for example. He took over it's the whole It's funny company. that he like came up with all these little terms for things. I know. Well, he doesn't have them today. I mean, this is back in the early days. No, I know. It's just it's like I'm, I can kind of imagine him being like, oh, I'm going to call those generals. Yeah. Um, so can you read it again now that you've explained that stuff? Sure. So the generals um, are where we have nothing to say about corporate policy. And we have no exact timetable when this change is going to occur to revalue the business properly, right? To oh, go back to intrinsic value. No control and no idea of timing. Right. And over the years, this is the largest category, and they, that's where they make most of their money over the years. Huh. And they has five fairly large positions, five or six, and then 10 to 15 small ones that are building. Which is very much what I'm teaching you, right? Same basic principles. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when he and Charlie Munger met, because I think it was right around the time of this letter, yeah, right? Yeah, very close to that time, right? Because he was investing on his own without Charlie for a while. Right. And Charlie influenced him a lot on these generals. You know, what are we yeah. really looking for here? Yeah. Okay, so here's the quote I wanted to give you um, in terms of exit. So f see if you follow this. Sometimes these work out very fast. Many times they take years. It is difficult at the time of purchase to know any specific reason why they should appreciate in price. However, because of this lack of glamour or anything pending, which might create f immediate favorable market action, they are available at very cheap prices. A lot of value can be obtained for the price paid. I love that lack of glamour. <laughs> Basically, nobody's looking at these things. Exactly. Nobody's okay. excited. This right. is not Tesla. Right. This substantial excess of value creates a comfortable margin of safety in each transaction. This individual margin of safety, coupled with a diversity of commitments, creates a most attractive package of safety and appreciation potential. I'm oh, that's read that interesting. Again. This is that's so That's interesting. Wait, let me just repeat. Okay, go ahead and read it again. Go right. ahead and read. This individual margin of safety, coupled with a diversity of commitments, creates a most attractive package of safety and appreciation potential. That is so interesting that he says a diversity of commitments mm -hmm. because you just said he owned five major positions and maybe 10 to 15 small ones. Right. And by most financial services <laughs> standards, that is not a diversity of commitments. That's and right. yet for him, it's huge. That's right. And it shows you what a disagreement he has with what are considered, you know, basic understanding about diversity. He thinks he's diversified. Yeah, And exactly. he thinks what they're doing is over diversification. And by the way, by his actual standard now, which is now he talks about owning like, as you always say, like 20 companies in your entire life, that is even a huge diversification at that time to own 20 companies at a given moment. Oh, at a given moment, yeah, I mean. Which means he's even like, like become more conservative in his view about that. Agreed, agreed. All right, onward. 
So the individual. So what he's basically saying in this sentence: um, this substantial excess of value creates a comfortable margin of safety in each transaction. This individual margin of safety, coupled with a diversity of commitment, creates a a, a most attractive package. So he's, it creates a most attractive package of safety and appreciation potential. This is Buffett's way of saying this is our best shot at having low risk, high return. Mm-hmm. That's what that mm-hmm. is. Okay. Over the years, our timing of purchases has been considerably better than our timing of sales. Oh, okay. Here we go. We do not go into these generals with the idea of getting the last nickel, but are usually quite content selling out at some intermediate level between our purchase price and what we regard as fair value to a private owner. Hmm. This is Unbelievable, this sentence right here. What Buffett's basically saying is that what they regard as fair value to a private owner, um, which I've come to understand over many years, is essentially half of what companies sell for in the public market often, right? But in this particular case, he's talking about what would happen if somebody bought out this whole company and took it private. Just you get a big company, then they just take it private. They buy the thing. What would it be worth to them as a private owner, right? And we're going to call that thing, that price, intrinsic value. Okay, so that's the purchase price that they would regard as fair value to a private owner. And what he's saying is we're usually a little bit bad at figuring out where to sell it, but we're usually selling it before it gets there. Yeah, like he's not going to hit the highest point of this company's price. Right. And he just assumes that at the outset. Right. Which I appreciate because I figure like I'm not going to hit it. I don't know. It it feels like a little bit of a failure if you expect that and then you don't. But like we're not going to hit it. Come on. Realistically, I'm not going to hit it. It's a bit of a fictional number anyway, right? I mean, we're just got to come up with being precisely right with our projections of what this thing is worth. We're going to do our best job at it. And Buffett's basically saying, you know, we sort of do a crappy job of figuring out when to sell. A lot of times when we sell, the price keeps going up. Mm-hmm. Right. So, for example, mm-hmm. I sold out a Chipotle Mexican Grill at 550 and had to watch it go to 760. You know, that is painful. That's painful. I know yeah. it's painful. So we just understand we're going to we're going to sell when it starts getting upward toward what we see as its real value in the market. And I've played around with that over the years. I tend to be a little more aggressive about waiting, and sometimes that's burned me. But in general, um, we're looking to exit in order that we have access to our capital and can use it in a way that's better than where it's sitting in that investment. Because as these companies rise up toward their intrinsic value, their rate of return to us starts to taper off. So think about it like this. If uh, if you buy, let's say you buy Whole Foods, right, like you did at roughly 30 and um, and the stock is worth roughly 50, let's just say. OK. okay. And as it rockets up, um, you decide to sell it at 50. OK, so then you sell it at 50 and you make this great return. Everything's good. What if you didn't sell it at 50? What would happen? Well, first off. The stock price change from 30 to 50 might happen very quickly. As Buffett says, these tend to go fast sometimes, right? 
Um, and so if it goes from 30 to 50, the market is reappreciating where it should be and repricing it at its intrinsic value. And that can happen very quickly. It can happen in months. It can happen in a year. And when that happens, you've gotten this enormous return on, on investment. So in this particular case, let's use round numbers. It goes from 30 to 60. You've doubled your money in a year, right? And your rate of return in one year would be 100%. Now, if that took two years to do that, then you've doubled your money in two years and your rate of return is, I don't know, 36% per year, right? And if it took three years to do that, your rate of return would be 26% per year. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, however long it takes to do that, it's still a really high level of return. Are you following me? Yes. You're getting a very high level of compounded annual growth rate in your money. Now, let's not sell it. Let's leave it there. So it goes from 30 to 60 in three years. You've got a 24% compounded rate of return, and now you don't sell it. And it doesn't keep going up at 24% a year or 26% a year. It flattens out your yield, your return. Because why? Because now it's not recovering from a mispricing. It is now only going to grow its price, if, if the market prices it properly, at the rate of growth of the company's earnings, which are probably not 24% a year. They might be 10% a year. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? So It does, so what you're saying is that the reason to find the intrinsic value and the reason to sell when the price moves back up to its intrinsic value is that it's not gonna have the kind of bump that you just got. Right, right, even if he gets it perfect. The market can overprice stuff as yeah. well because it can underprice stuff. But there's something in here I want you to see. And okay. the thing that's in here that's not really easily seen is that Buffett is gonna liquidate a fairly significant percentage of his portfolio, and that might be a fairly significant percentage of that company. And if he's liquidating, if he's selling, when the market has already kind of peaked and flattened out, it's going to be harder for him to sell without knocking the price down. Whereas if he's selling while there's still, the momentum of the price is still upward, he's going to have lots of buyers who want to buy his stock. And the impact of him liquidating a big position is going to be relatively minor. Does that make sense? Oh. So he's selling into a bunch of buyers. It'd be like, hey, this is a seller's market. Buyers are in there, they want to buy, and they're driving the price up. And Buffett goes, okay, that's close enough to intrinsic value. We're now going to liquidate into this pressure from buyers. Yeah, I got you. And I think what you're going to say next is we don't have that kind of worry, right? We don't have that kind of worry. But, but here's why I wasn't getting that for a second. Because in 1961... I don't think he was managing the kind of money that would really move anything. Well, was he was he? actually managing the money that would move things if he's buying small things. And he was buying a lot of small things. Oh, okay. Yeah, in that case, he would. Yep. Yeah. But to the point, there is a quality of timing going on here. Do you see it? I like do. Buffett doesn't time the market, but... Mm, He's timing the liquidation of this position. He is so funny. He is just like Mr. Like 
When do you sell a company? You never sell. Oh, but I totally sell all the companies I own. <laughs> when do you like time the market? I never time the market. Oh, but I do nothing but time the market and make sure that I can sell into some pressure on the price so that I don't lose any money right. or affect the market at all. And like, I mean, it's just, man. Well, the rules are a little different when you're little, right? I mean, they're different. We have advantages of being a small investor. And what I'm taking you back here is to a time when Buffett was a relatively small investor and yeah. had a different set of rules than he does now, right? Right now, if he liquidated, like we are saying, if he liquidated Coca-Cola, he'd blow a hole in the market. You right. can't get out of that. Right. So um, at least not for many, many years of quiet liquidation. And so this is how we should invest. This is as If we're trying to build a portfolio and get the highest rates of return for the lowest risk, then we have to be aware of roughly what is the intrinsic value of this business and as it rises toward that value, be ready to exit. But our exit is for a different reason. Buffett's exit is so that, you know, he can go put his money immediately into something else, perhaps, or at least just exit into a hot market. Ours, particularly right now, is to liquidate to get the wash tub. We right. want to build our cash stock. So we're going to look at the companies we own. And we are going to start liquidating companies that are at or near intrinsic value. We're, we're not going to try to be real accurate about what that intrinsic value is. We just know we bought them down here someplace and now they've gone up a lot. Let's, let's look at what's going on in the real world. What's going on in the real world is a vastly overpriced market that is getting really in an economy that's getting really wants to go into a recession. Might not happen for a couple of years, but we're right on the edge of historic lengths of time. This is not time to be a brave, bold investor. This is a time to be getting yourself in a position so that the next time the market really crumbles, you've got a wash tub and you are in a position to go in and buy these wonderful businesses on your watch list at a big discount. Now, don't tell me this right now. We'll talk about it next time. But here's what I want to know. Okay. Is that even true if the story has not changed other than that price? And part B, does the price changing mean that the story has changed? Is that something in the story that has changed? Very good questions. We will take those next time. I strongly recommend you guys run out there and get this book. It's on uh, available now. You can get it the next day from Amazon or go to your local bookseller. Even better, go to your local bookseller and um, and read it. Get into it because this book yeah, is a primer. For it'll help understand, help you podcast. understand all these conversations. Sure. I also want to mention, Dad, because we're actually coming up on it pretty soon. And we're just talking so much about Mr. Buffett. You and I are going to the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting in a few weeks. Like this is happening really soon. And I know a bunch of you who listen are going to be there too. And we are going to be doing um, a major book signing at Creighton University. We're going to be doing a major book signing on the Sunday at the airport bookstore. And we're also going to be doing, for everybody who's not going to be there, we're going to be doing a live podcast from a bookstore there called The Bookworm and um, and just talk to a bunch of interesting people. We're going to try to have guests on. When, when is that and podcast going to happen? It's going to be on Sunday afternoon, but we haven't scheduled the exact time yet. We also don't know how to do a live podcast, so we're going to figure all of this stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're gonna um 
I think it's going to be really fun. It's going to be us talking to people about everything going on at the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting that whole weekend. Also, if you'd, if you'd like to meet us, look for us in line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be in line there getting in on Saturday morning. Um, we're planning on being in the line at about five or six in that time frame someplace and uh, a.m. And, um, and we will also be racing together, all of us rule oneers. If you want to meet us, we'll be we'll be walk running the 5K. Um, if you can walk three miles slowly, you are in my league of racing skills. So come and meet us, and uh, you'll see us. We're with the Rule One shirts and Rule One T-shirts and stuff. We'll be there in the. So park. we'll have all the. Obviously, we're still figuring all of this out. We'll have all of this info about where we'll be and the signings and the podcasts and all that stuff. We'll have it all up on our websites, yep. and we'll announce it on the podcast as well. Just as soon as we know the answers. Exactly. Um, so check out DanielleTown.com and RuleOneInvesting.com and send your questions to questions at InvestedPodcast.com. Thank you so much, everybody. We're just, we're really feeling the love this week and appreciate all of you and can't wait to meet you hopefully at the meeting. All right, I guess it's time to go play. See ya. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, and my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.